Let's open our Bibles this morning to Psalm 16. That's where we're going to jump off from once we hit Psalm 16 and read through it. Remember, we, uh, in fact, this will be the, the end of this uh, uh, portion of our time in the Psalms where we read a psalm and, and then see its application in the New Testament, whether it's prophetic or whether it's fulfilled, however that is. And Psalm 16 and really Psalm 110 as well fits this, as, and we'll reference that a little bit later. But Psalm 16 um, speaks to us from a time in David's life. Um, Probably a time when um, Saul was chasing him through the wilderness and David was hiding. I mean, that was a lot of years that David spent running from Saul and the Lord providentially guiding him, protecting him. Remember, David wouldn't raise his hand against God's anointed, even though he had many chances. But uh, he just waited until it was the Lord's time to put him on the throne. So that comes, that's the context for Psalm 16. But there is a reference in Psalm 16 that does not apply to David, and we'll see that in just a moment. So if you're able, would you stand with me, and I'll read Psalm 16. Our Heavenly Father, come upon us and open our eyes to your word, that we might see it and understand it, and, and, and that it might live within us, Lord, and that it would come out in what we say and what we do and, and our attitudes and, and the very countenance, Lord that would give praise and glory to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 16, it's a mictum of David. And what's a mictum? Well, I don't know. I don't think anybody else knows either, but it's just one of those words that is there for us. Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in thee. I said to the Lord, thou art my Lord, I have no God beside thee. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their libations of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For thou will not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow the Holy One to undergo decay." Thou will make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there is pleasures for there are pleasures forever. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And you'll you'll notice the psalm goes along, and that's that's David. Sure, we can see that. We probably heard those types of things in, in other places from David until you get to the second half of verse ten. And all of a sudden, he has this, neither will thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. And that is referenced by both Peter and Paul in sermons in the New Testament. And it has one reference, as, as we will see, and very clearly, it's not David he's referring to. It's not himself that he's talking about here. He's talking about God's Holy One, the Messiah. So let's go back. Last week was, was Easter. 
And this is the first Sunday following the resurrection of Jesus. And, and as we know from the Gospel of Luke in, in the 24th chapter, there were two who were walking along and they're despondent because they think everything has come to an end and all that they hoped for, all the, that, that they had trusted in, uh, died with Jesus. And they had heard reports of empty tomb. They had heard reports, but... You know, that's rumors have gone around and heard reports of angels who had told some that Jesus was risen. Uh, but in reality, their hopes based, they were placed upon Jesus as the Messiah had, had kind of been crushed here. So there's a visitor that shows up as they're walking and they ask them, what are you talking about? And, and they said, well, haven't you heard about these things? And he says, what things? And they go, all oh, this Jesus of Nazareth and, and all that it was, and they're talking about Jesus. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, Luke says, before God and all the people and the chief priest and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and, and the crucified him, and we hoped he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. We'd hoped. All our hopes rested upon him. Then Jesus, whom they don't know is Jesus yet, he hasn't opened their eyes to that fact, he goes to Moses and the prophets in the Old Testament and begins to teach them all the scriptures concerning this Jesus. He told them everything it was. And it was the first sermon of Christ after he rose. This is the first sermon of Christ. And what Old Testament passages do you think he referred to? Well, we don't have any evidence of of what he referred to, but we're pretty sure he referred to Psalm 16, verse 10. Pretty sure he he went to that one. Because Peter used it in his section of the Psalms in in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And that's where we're going to go next. And Paul used it in Acts chapter 13. So this is a clear Old Testament prophecy about Jesus Christ. So let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. Now, the first part of verse 10 could be said by, or could be said or, or refer to any Old Testament saint. Um, won't desert me to the grave. Okay? Now, they didn't have a clear understanding or a clearly developed doctrine of heaven in the Old Testament. There was an understanding of something, but it's much clearer in the New Testament. But they knew that God would not desert them. But it's that second part of verse 10 that your Holy One will not face decay in the grave. That has specific application to Jesus Christ. Now, uh, let me give you some, uh, some funeral illustrations here from my days in the funeral home. One of the interesting facts that we learned is that because of the preservatives that we take in through our diet and through the world around us, that the body doesn't decay quite as fast as it used to. Now, I'm only talking an hour or so. I'm not talking that, that you, we could dig you up in 10 years without embalming you and you'd be the same. No, that's not what I'm saying. But it's just one of those things that, that your body doesn't decay quite as fast because read the back of your food. You know, how does that, you know, how does that food have a shelf life of 25 years? I don't, you know, a Twinkie. You know, how many of you had a Twinkie? After the apocalypse, there'll still be Twinkies out there, you know, because they have, they do not, their body does not decay, okay? Well, what, 
when we reference this in, in the second chapter of Acts, we're talking about a body that did not face decay. Remember when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, and it's been four days, and they say what? Oh, Lord, he stinketh. It's been four days. Why? Because it's the Middle East, it's hot, he's dead, the body decays. Jesus was in the tomb three days, but his body did not decay. That runs counter to what is natural. So this verse from 1610, Psalm 1610, applies only to Jesus. Now the rest of Psalm 16 can apply to uh, humans in, in general, or Old Testament saints in general, or David's particular application. But that portion applies only to Christ. And we see this passage come to fruition here in Acts chapter 2. And let's look at um, mm, 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 Acts chapter 2, verse 22 and following. And I'll read some for a while and then we'll come back to it. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now he's, he's making this plain. He said, you know these things. It's not like they were done in secret, and it's not like some of you gathered here did not see these things, were not recipients of these things. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. I wish Peter would come out of his shell a little bit sometimes and say really what he means. I mean, this is, he's not, this is, Peter's not southern here. He does not say, bless your heart, you tried, but it just didn't work out, you know. No, he says, you killed him. You killed him. You nailed him to a cross and killed him. But, verse 24, and God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because thou will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Psalm 16, thou hast made known to me the ways of life that will make me full of gladness in thy presence. Okay, so Peter, in his first sermon, is going back to Psalm 16, and he is preaching that Jesus is the one that David is referring to here. He will not abandon my soul to, to, to Hades. He will not let my body, the Holy One, go undergo decay. And Peter can say, look, how do I know this doesn't apply to David? Because we can go down the street, and I can show you where David's buried, which was true. But we can't show you where Jesus was buried. We can't show you that his body ever was touched by decay. David was referring to someone other than himself. So who would David refer to? Peter says, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that he's talking about here. Now, Peter isn't saying that in Psalm 16, we have to understand this, Peter isn't saying that that it once referred to David, but now it refers to Jesus. Because sometimes in prophecy, we see a, a short-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. But there's no short-term fulfillment for the second half of 1610. There's only one fulfillment, and that is in Jesus Christ. 
He's saying it never at any time applied to David, but it always applied to Jesus, the Messiah. And that sets the stage for the Messiah because the Old Testament had a purpose. It was to set the stage for Christ. It was to set the stage so that Jesus would fulfill all that the law and the prophets have said. So here in Acts chapter 2 from 22 uh, all the way down even through 36, and we'll look at some more of these in a moment, Peter presents Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, as the Messiah. Again, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, and then he goes on to list him a little bit, a man attested to you by God with miracles, with wonders, and with signs which God performed before through him in your midst, just as you yourselves have known, This man, delivered up by the predetermined and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And it is God who raised him up again. So flip over to verse 36 here. Just the first half of that. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So this is what the Father has done. Now, back, what was the evidence here that Jesus was who he said he was? He gives three things here, miracles, wonders, and signs. Three evidences here, and they all have distinct meanings. That's not, he doesn't repeat them for uh, emphasis. They all have distinct meanings here. Well, what is a miracle? Hmm. Miracle is described relative to the nature of the incident. It's a mighty work, a supernatural work. It's a manifestation of divine power. It comes from outside the natural world. So that's what a miracle is. A wonder is described as to the appearance of the event. So a miracle is the supernatural nature of the event. The wonder is the appearance of the event. Think for a moment. John chapter 9. Here's the guy born blind. Everybody knows he's born blind. And what? Jesus comes along. He can see. He can see. That's the appearance. It's startling. It is shocking. Here's an arm that's been withered. Everybody knows since birth that arm has been withered. And Jesus comes along and heals the arm. And it looks just like everybody else's arm. And everybody goes, how could that happen? It's the wonder at the sight. It's inexplicable. It is inexplicable. How about Jesus calms the sea? How does that happen in a natural way? Well, when the storm leaves and, you know, eventually the Sea of Galilee will calm down because it's kind of in a bowl. But Jesus said what? Be still. And the sea was like glass. That is unnatural. Okay? That is to the nature. It comes from outside. That is the wonder of it. It it was fantastic. And then the last description here is a sign and it describes it describes these events as to their intention as to their intention they were to point to christ and to validate his claims as the son of god now we see that the miracles go throughout the new testament they are signs they are there to validate the message of the gospel as it went forward um what was it they um Paul, people were after his handkerchiefs so that they can find healing just in his handkerchief. He would preach the word. They would do these things, and they would 
be confirmed, the message would be confirmed by these signs. And he says, as you yourselves know, as you yourselves know. So it is the work of the Spirit to convince what these people what is going on here. And besides, all this evidence, I mean, Peter is giving evidence upon evidence. And he's making a logical, rationed defense for what has happened here. But he's also working in the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this is Peter's first sermon after the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Uh, a day ago, an hour ago, what was Peter like? He wasn't the most reliable or the most powerful of individuals. Yes, he was, you know, he was a man of action, but suddenly, how is it possible that he can go from running and denying Christ to being the, the, the mouthpiece that 3,000 would be added to the church that day? It is the power of the Holy Spirit. So Peter begins with the life of Christ as, in a sense, the first proof of his Messiahship. Now you look at verse 23. This is the second proof, so to speak, of Christ's Messiahship. This man, and, and this man is therefore emphasis. He's already mentioned Jesus, so he, he, he's kind of pointing into their chest and going, this man that you did this to, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, this is a tough one, okay? This is one we don't necessarily like. Um, yes, they did these things. They were responsible. They nailed him to the cross. They crucified him. Why did they crucify him? Out of their own hatred for him. Out of their own uh, disappointment. Out of their own, they were threatened by Christ and his message. Why did they do those things? Because it was God's predetermined plan, and his foreknowledge. So did they have no choice in this? Oh, they had every choice in this. But yet, it was God's predetermined plan. And you're, you're thinking, if, if you're, you're saying, Randy, that just doesn't make sense. How can it be God's plan and, and foreknowledge to do this, yet it was their choice to crucify him? It was their hatred that put him on the cross. It was their efforts to do these things. How are these things possible? They are. This is the way the Scripture presents this information here. This man was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, the word plan here means design and purpose and will. It means to be appointed. It means a decree. It means to be set in stone. So something that is set in stone, we like to think that it is pretty serious. It's not going to change. Christ was delivered to death because God planned it. And then it said it was only, not only the predetermined plan, but it was done with the foreknowledge of God. Aren't those the same things? No, they are not the same things. They sound like it in the English language, but they carry different connotations. Foreknowledge means that something happened, something that God knows before it happens, it's going to happen because he has determined it will happen. 
It's not as just God is a fortune teller and he can see into the future and he sees that Randy's going to do this, so I'm going to adjust my plan and make it happen because I know Randy's going to do that. That's not what foreknowledge means. Foreknowledge means that God sees into the future and determines his plan and determines that Randy will do this to carry out his perfect plan. And Randy comes to that day and he, and what do I do? I make my free choice. This is the tie I wanted to wear this day. Was that my choice? Yes. Was it God's foreordained, predetermined will? Yes. How does my free choice of wearing this tie fit into God's predetermined plan for all of you? I don't know. That's the way it is, though. And it sounds like these are two opposite and, 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 and contrary things, but they are not. But they are not. This is a sovereign God who's in control of everything, but yet he gives us these choices on which tie I'm going to wear today. Am I going to speed going down 565? I think that's been predetermined. Okay? You know, so, so you've got all these things here, but yet it is God's working out his plan in all of these things. So he said it was God's plan. When did he predetermine this plan? And the question is, well, you know, I put these two in the garden and I gave them everything they wanted and, and they went and did their own thing when I told them not to. What am I going to do now? You can see God go, hey, what am I going to do now? No. It was his plan from all eternity that Christ should be delivered over to these people that they would nail him to a cross. When I say from all eternity, when is all eternity? There was never a moment in the mind of the Heavenly Father and the Son and the Spirit when this was not the plan that Christ would give his life, would die on the cross, would rise on the third day, and that would be our atonement. This has been the plan from God for all eternity. So Peter is saying he didn't die by accident. Yes, you, were, you hated him. You put him on the cross. You did this. But he says very clearly, God's determined, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was always God's decision from all eternity. It was what we call an eternal decree. Well, it's a big theological concept. Let's go to Westminster Confession and find a definition for it. The Westminster Confession defines eternal decrees as this, that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. That pretty much covers everything here. And unchangeably ordain whatever so comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby neither is God the author of sin nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. You understand that? He ordains whatever there is to come to pass, yet it does not violate your will. Uh, does your brain hurt? Your th- the theological part of your brain, it, does it hurt yet? It should hurt yet. But he does this, or, or he goes, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away. Well, what's a second cause? Here I am. I've got a broken arm. Could the Lord heal that arm in an instant? Yes, that would be a first cause. What would be a second cause? I go down to the dock in the box, and they put a cast on it. And they do it right, and it heals. That's a second cause. Does God use second causes to further his will? Yes, he does. Does he use third causes and fourth? Yes, he does. We don't always understand it that way, but he does work in that fashion. So although God knows whatsoever may come to pass, 
upon all supposed conditions. You know, did you ever get up in the morning? Probably not. And, and go, I'm going to wear this tie. And then all of a sudden you change your mind and you wear this tie. Is God going, oh, but I had him planned for this one. Now, God, God takes into all options in his consideration and supposed conditions. Yet he has not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. He didn't look and say, well, I'm going to shape the world because Randy's wearing this tie today. He says, I'm going to shape the world. Randy's wearing this tie. That tie will fit in with how I shape the world. Man. He didn't look down and see how you would act today, that you would act in such and such a way. So he made plans relative to that. He made plans and you will act in such and such a way by your own choice that will fulfill his plans. That's the power of God, the power of a sovereign God. The death of Christ was God's plan. It was an eternal decree. And we see throughout the book of Acts, we see in the New Testament, that the apostles are teaching this way. Christ had to suffer, he had to die, he had to be raised on the third day. Peter is blunt like this. He says, you killed him. You killed him according to God's plan. And God did what? God raised him up on the third day. This was the work of our Heavenly Father. Turn now to, um, oh, let's look at the, the end here. Um, no, you've got to turn to Acts 13. Let's turn to Acts 13 and see how Paul uses this passage. Pretty much the same way. So I'll just um, mention a couple things from it. Uh, Acts 13, begin in uh, 28. Acts 13, 28. This is, now, in the first 12 chapters of Acts, Peter is the ma- main preacher. In the rest of Acts 13 and beyond, Paul is the main preacher. Verse 28, and though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down, all that was written concerning him, that same way that that Peter would have said it, predetermined and foreknowledge of God. They took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he raised him up from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, Thou will not allow the Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that's the way that we say he died in the the first century, and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised up did not undergo decay. The body that was in the tomb for three days was pristine. It had the wounds. It had the marks. It did not suffer decay. It did not undergo any deterioration during that time. And far into the ministry of Paul, they're still preaching this. 
This is the message of the New Testament. These are the truths that are here for us. Back to chapter 2, Peter wants to give us one more aspect, uh, so to speak, of the proof of who Christ is, that he is the Messiah. And he does it with the ascension. Look at verse 33 of chapter 2. And we won't spend a long time on on the ascension. That will be for another day when we will uh, dig into that. Verse 33 of chapter 2. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Here it is. These, think of, of what has happened here. They're saying, you killed him, God raised him. You tortured him, God raised him. You screamed for his blood, you crucified him. His messiahship is seen in all of these things that you did. The facts are well known. They knew his life, they knew his miracles, they wanted his blood, they knew the illegality of the trials that he went through, they knew his story, and everywhere people are saying they've seen the risen Christ and the tomb is empty, and how can this be? Here's the validation from heaven that comes in this supernatural phenomenon of the risen Christ. And when they and, and then Peter comes and, and the Holy Spirit descends and they speak in these these languages and they speak of the wonderful works of Christ. So everybody knows what God is doing here. And look at verse 37. This is what's going on. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Peter is not model Molly coddling, he's not cradling this crowd. He is walloping them right in the face with what they have done and with the hard news of Jesus Christ and with the grace of God at the same time. And, and these people, these people who are listening, they're just pierced to the heart. And this is the only place this word is used here in, in the New Testament. And it literally means stabbed in the heart. Now maybe when you heard the gospel and you believed on that day, that's what it felt like for you where you were under such conviction and, and that, that this is true and that my life, I've got to have something because I am not right with the Lord. Maybe you felt like you were pierced by the Lord, pierced in your heart, crushed by him. But that is the cry of the convicted. The cry of the convicted, they felt pierced in their heart and said to Peter and the rest, what shall we do? I mean, that's, Think about that for a moment. You share the gospel with someone, and they are pierced to the heart. The, the question that should come out of their mouth is, what shall I do? Here I am. I am convicted of my sin. What shall I do? Because they don't know what to do. All they know is sin, and now suddenly they're under this conviction, and they look for a, an answer to this. The first and primary responsibility of the work of the Holy Spirit in presenting the gospel is the conviction of sin. This is not a warm, fuzzy illustration here. They didn't cry and think, oh, you know, I, I just, uh, there's, there's something missing in my life, and, and I, I think that it's God. No, they were 
pierced, stabbed in their heart, and, and to such a degree that they cried out, what do we do to have this fixed? Something has happened. We killed this guy. What do we do? And what, what comes next? It's grace. You know, here they are, one minute. They're the crowd that killed Jesus. They're the crowd that cried out for his blood. They're the crowd that wanted him tortured and, and spit on him and everything. And, and they are suddenly convicted by this. And now they cry out what to do. And along comes grace. Peter says in verse 38, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. This is grace. I mean, did a crowd, is there a crowd that ever really didn't deserve it? That's the crowd that Peter's preaching to. But they get it. And 3,000 were added to the church on that day. One moment they were pierced, they were guilty, they were hopeless. And the next moment they repent and they're the child of God. Such is God's grace to us even today. We who may have hated God at one time, we may have stood as his enemy, maybe, maybe just a, apathetic to the things of God. If you're pierced today in your heart, you say, this is true. Christ rose from the grave. He, his body did not undergo decay. He is the risen Lord. What do I do? Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Let's pray. Lord, what uh, uh, this is your grace. We, we, we look at hard things today. Things that are hard to understand about how you work in this world. But yet that's what your word says. We think of these people who crucified Christ, who understood, who, or who stood by and let these things happen, who did not intervene. Maybe they were supporters. Maybe they were crying out for his blood as well. And all of a sudden they hear the message empowered by the Holy Spirit and they are pierced right to their hearts. And they ask the question that needs to be asked, what can we do? Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the message for us, that we would know his truth and know his love and know a grace which we do not deserve, but yet you have it for us. Speak to our hearts today, we pray, that if they be pierced, we would cry out, what must I do, Lord? And the answer is you must repent and believe. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.